Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. September 14, 2014, episode 64. I'm so excited. I am excited. This is Kevin England, happy to be back behind the microphone one more time to bring you another episode of the Beekeeper's Corner podcast. It's a cool fall night, even though it's not fall yet. It's still summer here in New Jersey, but it's going to be a low of 45 tonight. That's um, pretty cool for these parts and below temperature as usual. It's been a really cool summer this year. Not exactly sure what that's about. And if you listen to the Farmer's Almanac and or to some of the prognostication of uh, people who are predicting a crazy, crazy northeast weather and uh, very bad winter here for us. But let's live in the moment here and now. I have a few things to bring you here today. Let's talk about what we're going to discuss on this episode. The first one aerial seeding of fields to plant cover crops. I want to talk about how honey does last forever. Aggressive bees. Why is it that there is so much clover honey in this world? The Apiary Inspectors of America, a short editorial on CCD, and maybe a couple other things thrown in along the way. As with any Beekeeper's Corner podcast, a good episode starts with the local hive report. Going to jump right in. Ten hives on the property. Everybody's doing perfectly fine. Been feeding them periodically back and forth. I noticed on the last episode that I talked about putting the top bar hive together. One thing that took place is... Bob Claus stopped by recently, he had a handful of bees that he had from that trap out that I had talked about in one of our episodes. He had literally put the cone on to keep the bees from getting back inside to the cavity where they were inside the tree, and he had some bees, but he has yet to coax the queen outside. And so he had a handful of bees, and we thought the best thing to do with them is bring them over and put them inside the top bar hive. They'll just increase the numbers there. Maybe they can get the foragers, because likely that's who got added to the population, and it'll help them get some things in the box for fall. So the top bar hive looking good. Still need a quantity of bees. Put some food in with them today to try and keep them going. Um found the queen when we were looking through she looked pretty good and situated the hive Uh, everything's in order there there's really not much to be said about everything else they're all three deeps at this point although two deeps in the box one being worked on i built two new migration covers for nukes and have been feeding one of the nukes through the top and have top feeders on all of them and have been feeding them I did a mite count across several hives, and one of them was loaded. I put some Apivar strips in that hive, so treated the first hive this year. I'm a little late for that, but so be it. Um, Local hive report, 10 hives, they're all flying. They all look good. I see them bringing in a lot of pollen. I know the goldenrod and 
and uh, other fall plants are out there. I could smell it in the hives when you, you know, stand there. You can tell they're bringing that in, but um, they still feel pretty light to me. I wish they would start putting on some weight. I'm hearing in New Jersey that the nectar flow is starting to be on. I'm hearing from other regions, not so much ours, that things are going good. And uh, I'm really hoping that we have a good fall flow. Hasn't rained that much here in New Jersey, and I'm not sure how much water the plants are holding. I don't even know if that's a misnomer, but I tend to believe that. In order for the plants to have nectar to give, they have to have moisture. And uh, I saw uh, the jewelweed, which is a plant that thrives on water. Uh, seemed a little bit dried out this year compared to past years, so I guess we'll just keep an eye on that. In the meantime, I have some sugar solution one-to-one that I've been putting on them. If you are feeding your bees at this time of year, it's a one-to-one solution. You don't want to give them excess moisture. Uh, cool nights and other times, they don't have as much opportunity to evaporate that out. So that's it for the local hive report. Ten hives doing okay. Hoping to get them to winter. There are actually nine hives and a nuke, but I'll count that nuke as a hive and let it keep going. For segment number one, I call this one Cover Plants. I'm so excited. Our local paper had an article on a soil conservation project that will be undertaken by the North Jersey Resource Conservation and Development Council. When I read through the game plan, which is to plant four species of cover plants over the course of three years, I thought how exciting it is that they're doing something right in my neighborhood, my local area. The premise of this program is that they're going to plant clover in hopes of adding nitrogen to the soil, product number one. A tillage radish, which has long roots, and is going to help relieve soil compaction, product number two. Triticle, which is something I've seen in cereal bars as an additive to oats and so on. It's like an oat itself, I guess, which will overwinter and grow into the spring. And then oats for early establishment in the spring to keep something on the ground. Now, part of this is about soil conservation, especially in some watershed areas. And the goal is to get this program up and running this week, meaning tomorrow, the week of September 15th. And they want to get the plants to get established before winter gets here and then cover the soil in through to spring and the first harvest that they're going to do or their first plantings. So one might ask, well, what does this have to do with beekeeping? Well, it's about the soil. (laughs) Good soil is good for everyone, and good soil grows plants. And whatever those plants are, hopefully diversity, it will help the bees and native pollinators. I think simply it means that more things will grow in the healthier soil. And in this case, they are targeting areas that have been planted single-source or not that many sources over the last number of generations. By that I mean people around here plant a hayfield, and they do it season after season after season. As I look at what's on the products, the, the plants in the fields that I've seen, 
The cornfields are cornfields. The soybean fields are soybean fields. As I drive around my local neighborhood every year, they have the same product on them. And the study that I looked at that led to this says that back to 2008, when this idea was proposed, it shows that farmers are following these patterns. So the area will have fall clover on fields where single source crops are still in play. And I guess I should explain how they're going to do this program. There are cornfields, like the one next door to me, where they plowed the field under in the springtime. And then they put Roundup on it and killed everything. There was nothing but dirt. Then they planted corn. And if I look around at the soybean fields and other corn fields around us, this Roundup Ready program that they have, they're doing the same thing. What bothers me in the springtime is that these fields do kind of start to bloom and bring things, and then they plow it all under, and anything that starts to grow, they round up it. So it's dirt. And then they plant corn and soybean, and the only thing you will find is corn and soybean. If I look in the cornfield next to me, in between the rows and around the field, dirt, no plants whatsoever. So in the program, they are going to use an airplane and they are going to seed these fields from above with these four products that I mentioned. The idea is that it will get them established in the few remaining days of summer and into early autumn. And when the farmers cut the late season crops down, and they do it in October and sometimes even November around here, these cover plants will take root. The typical MO that I've seen from farmers around here is they either leave the cut corn stalks to spring and then they plow them under, or they go right now and plow everything under and leave the field dirt over winter. In this case, the byproduct will be that these fields will be covered with some sort of products and not be dirt. So awesome, because it's awesome. <laughs> All in all, they're planting some 1,100 acres plus, 1,100 plus acres in Hunterdon, Warren, and Somerset counties where we live. They're focusing on two watershed areas, in particular the Neshanik and the Musconetcong. The network of the rivers and the tributaries for the Neshanik runs through our hometown, and one of the tributaries literally runs through the front of my property. So now you can tell why I'm so excited. Now, whether they'll literally come close to us in the end and plant the fields around me, I don't know. But at minimum, anywhere in this valley where they're planting this stuff, I'm hoping that other beekeepers will, will benefit from this. And maybe I will be fortunate enough to see these planes flying over nearby and my bees will have some clover to work on here late in the fall i think it's spectacular <laughs> while it's centered on soil conservation the improvements to the soil and the addition of plant diversity is just so exciting i've mentioned a couple times recently that we're looking to work with our local farmers to develop programs for plant diversity and to put in hedgerows 
and to put in pollinator strips and things like this. And this is a great first step. If there's good awareness here to improve the soil, it kind of lays the foundation for the programs that we as the beekeepers are looking to collaborate with our local farmers and growers and homeowners on. So this was reported in our local newspaper called the Huntington County Democrat. And I'm going to read the quote from there that describes the program to the public. Quote, Currently there is a national movement driven by farmers across the country who are seeing tremendous benefits to their soil by planting multiple species of plants in their cover crop mixes and by not tilling the land, said NRCS state conservationist Kerry Mosley. Based on the New Jersey climate and latitude, one of the only ways to plant a cover crop into late maturing crops like corn and soybean is to broadcast the seed from an airplane. End quote. So this allows the cover crop to be growing, to begin growing, and become established before the corn or soybeans have harvested. So this is great because, as I mentioned, I've watched our farmers plow under their fields every year, and especially in the spring when they've grown knee-high with early plants. It's really disheartening and one of the reasons we're wishing, working to push our farmers in our region and, the, and t to have them take these fields that are doing nothing in the fall and plant them with some sort of cover that our bees can forage on. This is just great. I, I, did I say I'm excited? Did I say it's great? It's spectacular. <laughs> Before I end the segment, a thanks has to be said to the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the USDA, NRCS, Frenchtown Field Office, and other agencies and grant providers that had a part in making this happen. And also, most importantly, thank you to the farmers who are participating. I'll provide a link to the Democrat article as posted on NewJersey.com and also a link to the Nishanik Watershed Restoration Plan, which has got all the metadata you'd ever want on this program and how it came about, and where it covers, and uh, things like that. So, a pretty interesting reading over there. For segment number two, I want to talk about honey. And I call this one Honey Forever. One of the first things you learn as a beekeeper is that honey never spoils. Time and time again, we repeat that factoid that honey was found in the ancient Egyptian tombs from 3,000 years ago, and it was perfectly edible. Now, I know we learn about bees and we learn about beekeeping and whatever, but honey is always the central conversation when you talk to friends and family and the public. But do you know exactly why honey doesn't spoil? Well, most of you are taking an educated guess that it has to do with moisture and acidity, and if so, give yourself a prize, you're on the right track. First, and let me not get ahead of myself, let's talk about, just just spend a moment on how bees convert nectar into honey, because it's the precursor to why honey doesn't spoil. A bee finds nectar in nature from the plants, 
and they take it into their specialized honey stomach when they're transporting it back to the hive. In the time that they also transport it to the receiver inside the hive, and that's a point of order, right? The, the forager gathers the nectar, puts it in its honey stomach, but it's not the one putting it in the cell. It comes back to the hive, it goes inside, it meets with a receiver, and it regurgitates the honey out of the stomach and transfers it to the other bee, which takes it into its stomach. During that time frame, when it's in the honey stomach, which is not the same as the regular stomach for the bee, in case you're getting grossed out about all this, sucrose is broken into fructose and glucose. And the mix of enzymes and other processes are going on inside. So now the receiver bee is going to go to a cell in the honeycomb and it is going to load the product in. And they'll work to transform the liquid, which could be at a moisture level of 70% or higher. And they have to get it down to honey, which can be capped and will never spoil. They do this by the process of evaporation. At 17%, honey has what is referred to terminology-wise a lower water activity. Water activity is a term to describe the partial vapor pressure of water and is related to, but not exactly the same measurement as water content in a product. What is more important to know is that higher water activity substances tend to support more microorganisms and bacteria usually require at least 0.91, while fungi require 0 0.7. 0 0.91, 0.7, what am I talking about? Honey has a water activity of 0.5 to 0.7, and coupled with its low water content, dehydrates bacteria and makes it resistant to spoiling. So low water content, 17% or less, and this state that it's in, water activity, partial vapor pressure of water, combine to make it so that microorganisms and bacteria cannot survive in the product. So this is all true, but that's not the full picture of it. There's a little bit more. The other important thing that plays into keeping honey from spoiling is acidity. One of the reference articles I reviewed had this to say about honey acidity. Honey's average pH is around 4. This acidity is contributed to by a number of acids, including formic acid and citric acid, but the dominant acid is gluconic acid, produced by the action of B enzymes on some of the glucose molecules in the honey. This further boosts honey's antibacterial properties as many bacteria thrive in neutral rather than acidic conditions. Hydrogen peroxide is also produced by the production of gluconic acid, and this too can inhibit the growth of bacteria. A sidebar called out in the article went on to say, 
that honey, of course, is being used for wound treatments for a long time and still in use today. And it's because of these properties that it makes a good product to use for burns, cuts, scrapes, things like that. So honey's an amazing product, but we all knew that. I guess it warrants a short caution for the forever notion of what I'm saying, though. If you harvest liquids from a cell that are uncapped, you might not have honey. You could have sugar water solutions. Or you have honey that is not down to the percentage where it won't spoil. If you get some honey that has a high moisture content, you could run afoul of the science that we just talked about. I guess it also makes sense to note that you should be cognizant that honey is hygroscopic. And if you leave it unsealed, it will absorb moisture. So sealed honey is golden and forever. I'm done with uh, what I wanted to present here, but a note came to mind. Sharon pulled out a jar of honey this morning. And we opened it up and we noticed it had a slight tinge to it and my thought is I know one batch I harvested way back when and this was old honey it was crystallized had a combination of sealed honey and a little bit of unsealed honey around and we harvested it and it had a little sour taste to it and it is possible that that honey is starting to ferment is it going to kill me I don't think so we put it in hot tea so whatever's in there maybe it could killed as a bad bug but you do want to be careful with this stuff and make sure that especially if you're giving it to friends family or selling it that you are doing it properly so two links accompany this segment one is the wikipedia article on water activity and you can read more about that the other is called the chemistry of honey the catalyst for this segment Segment number three, I'm going to call Just Plain Ornery. Two of my hives originated in the spring from Charlie Ilsley's apiary. I think if I reflect back to a previous episode that I commented Charlie's bees did not like me. That notion is coming full circle. Charlie called me on the phone the other day and he had some exchanges with our Beekeepers Association in the state apiarist about some of his bees. Charlie and veteran beekeeper Carly Toth, and Charlie's a veteran by his own rights, they've been doing some voodoo beekeeping over to Charlie's place because he's had about just enough. One or two of his 15 plus hives are really ornery. I love that word, ornery. <laughs> On the day that I visited his apiary when we pulled those two hives, I got stung two or three times just for standing nearby and worked in a suit for the rest of the day. Charlie has been reporting that one of his hives in particular has become paramount to savage and he's taken measures to replace the queen. And I think in some respects, call the drones. It so happens that one of the hives that I had sourced from a split was that very hive that Charlie's working with, and that's why he called me. I chatted briefly with him about the disposition of the hive in my yard 
and over the summer it's become progressively more troublesome in my bee yard. Case in point, I lifted the top cover off the hive this morning to feed it and got stung three times for my effort. I went in the other nine hives and nothing. No stings, no guards, nothing. And I had no smoke. Think about the way this works. The hive tops have feeders on them with an inner cover and outer cover placed on top. You really don't need the inner cover, but I don't want to haul them back to the garage, so I just set them up there. Now, sometimes there's propolis on that inner cover, and the top cover will stick to it. So you just got to pop it a little bit to get it off, and then you can pour the liquid in the feeder. Hmm. On the offending hive, I tapped the cover because it was a bit stuck, and the vibration immediately got the guard's dander up. Now, I was wearing a veil and shorts and a short sleeve t-shirt. I'm just going out to feed them. I didn't even bring smoke. And the bees on that hive chased me back to the house. It's September, and I don't have any queens. And I'll let them go because I don't think the drones that that queen produced are out mating with others and spreading bad genes. In the spring, before they get going, I will take care of that hive in earnest. I'll pinch that queen and I'll replace her with something better. I suppose I might have to take my lumps for the rest of the season, but I've noticed lately that I can't go to that hive without being menaced. And I thought maybe, just in general, before Charlie called me, that there was something else going on. Maybe a skunk's been bothering it, or maybe they're low on food, or varroa infested. I, I don't know, all these things. But there's really nothing special per se about that hive versus all of the other ones, other than its origin. So the funny thing is, and this is the way beekeeping is, the other hive from Charlie's place, no problems. <laughs> Works perfectly good. Queen's been productive. In fact, it's it's one of the better producers in the yard right now. And um, the bees are fine. Open them up. No, no worries there. So how do you figure that out? Go figure. I don't know. So a couple thoughts on this whole dynamic. One, while I don't have any neighbors for concern where I have my bees, who the hell wants to be harassed every time you walk into the yard? Secondly, I don't want those genetics in the gene pool in my neighborhood. And let me put a pin in that for a second and I'll come back in a moment. But my drones form that hive and going out and mating could spell more aggressive bees in the neighborhood and even in my own yard. And that's generally not a direction we want to go in for domesticated bees. All right, so I said, let me put a pin in it. Let me come back to that other point. I've always been told, and I know that there's a notion that aggressive bees are something you might not want to shy away from totally. They could be a tinge nasty, but they also have the reputation of being great producers and, more importantly, survivors. My take on this is I won't have a conniption over bees that are assertive for the reasons that I just mentioned. I've dealt with it in my yards. I don't have the most docile bees over the over the last couple of years i just you know i've been in other people's yards where their bees are beautiful they're beautiful 
they're gentle. They, you know, Bob Kloss was telling me the other day about a hive that he hit with his mower, and they apologized to him for getting in the way. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't have those kind of bees. I don't think I ever have, except for a couple hives. You know, most of them, if you pinch them or bang them or do something with them, they'll they'll buzz you a little bit. But, um. I certainly don't have a love of getting stung and really can appreciate gentle bees. But these bees in particular, they're just brutes. They're bullies. There's nothing tolerable about bees buzzing your veil and stinging your suit. These bees are nefarious. (laughs) I've worked my bees for years in a t-shirt and shorts. And I'll swear to you that I never had a problem until this hive. I've been stung in the armpit after I crawled up my shirt sleeve, in the stomach, on the chest, on the knee, on the ankle. This morning I had one crawl up my shorts into my underwear. Nope, (laughs) didn't get stung. (laughs) And yes, I figured that might happen someday, but these girls have gone too far. And I guess you could tell I've had enough. Now, I wouldn't say the jury is in yet. If this continues to be a problem, you might see me shake him out in the yard next weekend. And pinch the queen. I would hope that I can hold off until I can replace her. And make use of the population. And change the genetics by putting a new queen. To get rid of this nasty streak. And we'll see what the spring is going to bring. Here's a question for you. Have you ever had a hive like this? Ever dealt with a problem like this? And I would say if you're dealing with a problem like this. You should address it. Especially if you have neighbors, and you certainly don't want a genetic stock in your neighborhood where the bees are really aggressive. Um, That being said, people work with Africanized bees in African nations, so, you know, anyway. I don't have a point here other than it's something you really have to have a game plan for and you should address it. That's all I had on the docket this week for segments. Let's go to the back of the book. We call this the roundtable section where we go through a run of topics meandering. The first one is, why is there so much clover honey? This was making the rounds on the Facebook beekeeping club sites, and I took the bait and gave it a read. And darn if I didn't learn something I didn't know. (laughs) this is a kevin moment if you watch the bing bang theory that was in a sheldon voice just saying (laughs) i know that one of the most popular honeys you can buy in the grocery store is clover honey yeah duh i always wondered why there was so much clover honey but figured it had to do with more of its neutral sweet flavor than anything else still It always lurks in my head, why clover and where does it all come from? You would think there's tons of orange groves and there's certainly enough almond honey out there that why is it clover? I don't know. So in my feeble little mind, I always answered myself with thinking that just about anywhere you go in the U.S., there you will find clover planted. And given its predominance, most honey that is not labeled wildflower, honey, is referred to as clover. And I guess you could hear me struggling with this when I talked about it in our most previous episode, episode 63, 
when I talked about clover honey and answering this question during the honey tasting that we had at the Great Tomato Festival. So there, people ask me, why Why was everything labeled clover honey? And I kind of reason that our honey in the spring is probably clover honey because it's everywhere here. And generally, our spring honey tastes akin to the tone of the honey that you would get in the store. It has the same color, the same texture, the same taste. Therefore, people could relate to it as clover honey, and people don't challenge you on that. Even though all clover honey, my guess is would be multi-flower, multi-source, depending on what the bees are working. So sure, our clover honey tastes like the stuff that's in the store, but we all know it's better. (laughs) And it's not... The characteristic of clover honey is it's light, it's flowery, it's very sweet. In contrast to a fall honey, which has more character, a little more dark notes, some earthy tones. Hey, look, being beekeepers, I guess you're all following me on this. So anyway, to the article from Facebook. Yeah, I had a point here. In the article, it talked about the meanderings of commercial beekeepers. And one of the fundamental tenets is many of them, by design, take a respite in the Great Plains after pollinators of almonds and the like. So they're doing almonds, they're doing this, they're doing that. They all kind of come together. And the article says that they're in the areas of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Montana, Minnesota, and the Dakotas. These are the places where the bees are on clover. Literal clover fields of clover, clover. Wait, (laughs) There's a Kevin moment there that I can't let pass by. And I'm in a mood, folks, so hang with me here. I have some favorite words. Serendipity, Molly Coddle, Doppelganger, and yes, Saskatchewan. I love that word. <laughs> Whenever I'm trying to refer to someone having an off-to-some-far-place adventure, I always say, yeah, they shipped them to Saskatchewan. Now that I know they have a lot of bees there, I'm going to have to go see it someday, you know, to say I've been to Saskatchewan. End of Kevin moment. So, in the end, this article wants me to envision (laughs) that there's a bee paradise somewhere in the Great Plains with industrious bees humming along to the amber waves of grain and clover and diversity of plants. Doesn't that sound like a bee heaven? As you could probably guess, I will provide a link in the show notes to that article. Yep. Roundtable number two, Apiary Inspectors of America. I know that I covered apiary laws from each state in a past episode. The list I worked from back then was from a Wikipedia page or some bee source form or something. I recently came across the AIA webpage, and they also have a resource for the laws of each state. I, of course, clicked on New Jersey and saw Tim Schuler's information and all the information there. They have a listing of inspection services by state. So it had Tim's contact information, the state website, and other resources. And every state has a similar listing there, from what I could see. 
Also available at the AIA website is information about inspector meetings. And they have a menu item where you can review meeting minutes and documents of past activities, although they seem to be a bit behind. It was from 2008-9. That's about the newest stuff I saw there. They have links to various state and national beekeeping organizations. So that's really cool. One of the things I noticed is New Jersey has the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. You would think Virginia would have that, and so would Idaho and Kansas and all the others. But when I was reviewing other states, I noticed that sometimes they don't have state-level organizations. They might have four or five state organizations. I never contemplated how the structure was of beekeeper associations in this world. I suppose some states have far more beekeepers than New Jersey. We have one state association and 10 branches that operate under the guise of the state. So you can go and take a look at every state and see how they're situated. It's pretty interesting. And, of course, the last link they have there is contact information if you want to reach out to the AIA and send them a note or provide them information about things you know that they can include on their website. The web address there is www.apriinspectors.org. And, of course, we'll have a link on the show notes. So roundtable number three, CCD, it's the pesticides, right? It's a bit of an editorial, so please indulge me for a moment. I know you've been doing that all night. It's nighttime. All through the episode, I should say. I want to follow up on my coverage of the imidacloprid study from the last episode, episode 63, with a little perspective. Ask me what's killing the bees. Kevin, what's killing the bees? Darn if I know. <laughs> I know what kills my bees. Ripe old age. Me when I squish one. Me when I treat and the treatments kill them. Me when I don't treat and the treatments don't save them. <laughs> me and them when they sting me. Yeah, I know. I'm a little silly here. But the fact of the matter is, is it pesticides? How would I know? I'm not sampling and testing my hives to determine the load inside. I don't have an agenda here. So the point of my little sidebar with myself there is I cover the news, the research, and other tidbits that come my way. But if you ask me personally, Kevin, what's the cause for CCD? I won't give you a singular answer. I won't tell you that imidacloprid is, is at fault here. And I hope one doesn't come away from my coverage thinking I was convinced in that coverage that imidacloprid is the cause for CCD. I think scientists, researchers, Bayer, they all have insights, but the real world, the real world tells us there's more questions than answers about all of this. So I would never go on record saying CCD is caused by pesticides. I will say that I think CCD could have something to do with pesticides, but won't equivocally say it's true unless I do the research myself and I can prove it. But the other side is, I, I'll ask beekeepers about CCD. Is it really a CCD? 
I don't even know. That's the first question you have to ask. Okay. So I have my suspicions, and I guess it's only human nature to root for something. To say this is the savior of the bees. In this case, what I'm rooting for is change. (laughs) Any change that's going to favor the bees, and more so the ecosystem on this great planet that we live on. I don't know if it's going to cause the end of the so-called CCD, but everything that makes life better is the way to go. So in all seriousness, there's been a long-standing suspicion that sublethal doses of chemicals is harming bees and that our methods of testing are inadequate. Imidacloprid, clothianidin, fungicides, herbicides, I don't really care what the culprit is. What I care about is that mankind is smart enough to establish sound practices for testing and impacting nature, especially when it comes to honeybees and other native pollinators, which literally impact life on this planet. We have a greater responsibility in this life to do things that do no harm. Are pesticides to blame? No. Humans who use chemicals on this planet in ways that do more harm than good, are to blame. For that, we can fall back to testing and laws, and we can get it right, and let's get it right. That's my answer. Let's lighten things up a little bit for roundtable number four. I call this one Facebook. So much fun. There's a bunch of branches of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. We have a Facebook page, in case you haven't heard. Facebook.com slash Beekeepers Corner. There's also an NWNJBA, Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, Facebook page. But the Northeast Branch and the Central Branch and the Jersey Cape Branch, they all have them. Facebook pages, that ours. I was surprised in one of our meetings when I asked how many people were members of Facebook. Not a lot of people raised their hands. I guess that's, sorry to say, folks, the older generation. They they didn't participate. But I belong to a number of these things. And I have to say, if you're on Facebook, you could look for association web pages. They're great. They're great. They're so much fun. People share articles, people share pictures, people share funny stories, people share life experience. They share things about themselves. Sometimes they're kooky, sometimes they're not so great to read. But overwhelmingly, the Facebook experience when it comes to beekeeping is that networking part that you get when you listen to this podcast. And you hear our ideas, and you hear what other people have sent me and what we share. Some days I don't get to our Facebook page very often, and other days I post nine articles in a row. Sometimes they tire me out to see other people's Facebook pages and all the stuff. But nine times out of ten, when I want a place to look to just find and get away or do whatever, I start looking at some of the Facebook page articles and I find a lot of neat stuff. And it actually is source for a bunch of these episodes, uh, different article things. So if you're not a member of Facebook, you're missing out. I'm not saying join Facebook for beekeeping, but if you are, take a look. 
there's different associations, different beekeeping clubs, and it's from all over the place. So you can really get diversity. While I'm at it, you could look at the cousin of forums, Bee Source, Bee Master, other ones. There's other training programs out there. There's newsletters that you can be to. Uh, the UC Davis one is great. Um, Brushy Mountain's got one, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, there's AP News that comes from, I think, South America. Always has that in there. There's a plethora of resources. Not that you want to spend all day reading these things, but every once in a while when you want to get away, it's always neat to have a bunch of resources to go look at. So, Facebook, go ahead. Take the plunge. Enjoy it. You're going to love it. Roundtable number five, I wanted to talk about a brochure that's being created for the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. Similar to the theme we have going on here recently. I had the fortune to participate a bit in helping put this together. And it's something we have a keen interest in. The brochure is called Pesticides, Fungicides, and Herbicides, Minimizing Their Impact on Honeybees and Other Pollinators, A Guide for Homeowners, Farmers, and Commercial Growers. It's a three-fold, eight-and-a-half by eleven brochure in the beekeepers association from the state has a bunch of these for various things one is about pests and how you could tell the difference between a honeybee and a wasp and a yellow jacket so on and this one it has a bunch of different sections that kind of lay out different approaches of messages that you want to give one is how to use pesticides wisely one is helping bees and other pollinators Simple tips you can use right now, for example, don't overdo it, spray at the right time, avoid systemic types of pesticides. It talks about using pesticides improperly and how harmful it is in several different ways. To the farmer, to the grower, and to the home gardener, good pesticide practices, techniques, looking for bees before you spray, spray at night when they're gone, Make sure that you're spraying target and not getting overspray that's killing foraging bees and other pollinators nearby. Different application methods to farmers to give them some guidance. And then somewhere in the middle it talks about the symptoms of pesticide poisonings and determine how your bees are doing. If you have bees on the property, whether they're actually seeing pesticide problems. It gives a short little blurb about pesticide exposures and other ones that you can look for besides bees being dead. Recent problems in the beekeeping industry. It tells a little bit about the losses. It discusses the side effects of pesticides and how it actually impacts a bee by weakening their ability to navigate and so on. And uh, it talks a little bit about fungicides and synergistic effects and In the end, it provides links to the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection pesticide information, the NRCS, and, uh, of course, the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. So there is a ton, ton packed in this thing, but it's really a good resource for us to put out. And fundamentally, it's going to be something that um, 
we can reharvest for presentations to the farmers that we're going to talk to and then hand it to them and they can walk away with it. So uh, kudos to those who put it together. There was a lot of work behind the scenes, I know, from participating to get this thing right, to lay it out properly, to get the right information, fact check it, uh, change the language. One of the bigger things was I handed it around to work the prototype to some people who are not beekeepers, just general lay people, and had them read it and ask them what they struggled with in terminology and the things they came back with. You know, you're a beekeeper. You read forage all the time. One person said to me, I don't know what you mean by forage. So you have to kind of give that lens, and that's a good suggestion if you're creating any paperwork to hand out, is just have somebody uninclined read the thing and give you feedback. So that was a really valuable resource. It went to the printer this week, and we're expecting it to be a resource that we can have for handouts at fairs and speaking events and at the state level. So, again, thanks to the New Jersey Beekeepers Association for another great resource for beekeepers in the state. So I look through my notes, and I have come to the bottom of the pile. Don't have anything else for this episode. A little bit of a goofy mood, I guess. Uh, you could tell it's late at night on a Sunday. I'm recording. Everybody's in bed, and I should be too. I have to take a moment and say happy anniversary to my lovely wife. Today was our 23rd anniversary. I'm just thinking back at this time where we were 23 years ago. I think we were just leaving the hall after having an incredible night of partying. (laughs) We had the funnest wedding. Nobody got drunk, belligerent, fought, and whatever. People danced and they sang and they had fun and really, we had a great wedding. I was joking with Sharon today that we should probably pull out our videos and watch just the reception because it was it was a blast. We were thinking about the songs that we sang and the what we did the day before. And yeah, I know this isn't interesting. So <laughs> anyway, happy anniversary to us and uh, looking forward to many, many more. On on that note, I guess I will offer a closing comment. Um, It's mid-September. Racing season's coming to a close. I'm going to plan to go to races next couple weekends. I don't know how much I'm going to get into my bees, but they've got what they've got. Uh, I really didn't want to feed them this year, but I had to feed them because they were mostly new hives, and they're still really light. I'm really hoping this is the week of goldenrod. I'm not exactly sure what these girls are doing. I see them bringing pollen all the time, but I don't I don't feel these hives getting any heavier. The general rule of thumb, if you've listened to past episodes, is you want about 60 pounds of honey in the northeast so that they'll have enough food to overwinter, and you certainly want to have enough bees in the box. I think I have plenty of bees, but I'm just light on nectar. It was really dry here in August and September. We still haven't seen a reasonable amount of rain. I'm hoping these plants plump up a little bit here in in the remainder of September and early October. Maybe we'll have a good fall. I don't know, but a little bit worried about that. And just keep hearing on the news, on the weather, that we're going to have one heck of a winter. So, anyway... Yeah, 
you could think I'm thinking about shutdown and uh, getting things done. It's uh, it's that time of season, and and I start to get into those anxious moments for fall. If you're a beekeeper in the Northeast or whatever, and your bees are either good or or not, and I think it's fifty fifty split when I talk to people. Some of them say, "Yep, two thumbs up. They're good to go. They got plenty of weight on their hives. They got plenty of bees." They treated their stuff if they had to do it. Low mite counts. They're good to go. Let's get right to that first frost. And I have other beekeepers who said the same thing. Kind of neutral or not so good that they don't have the weight that they need in their hives. And, um, you know, I'm I'm not panicking. But I really would like to see them be a little bit heavier. And uh, I'm really cheering for this. Falls. I, I look around, uh, I think, the goldenrod and the asters and the other plants that I've seen, they were all there last week, maybe a week and a half ago is when they broke. And I know from a pattern that typically you see something come, it opens a flower, but it's not quite ready yet. So even the sedum that I have, that I have throughout my driveway, that I know that my bees are on every year, it's not there yet. It's it's just purpled up a little bit. It's starting to pink. The bees are looking at it, but they're not on it. And when it breaks, they'll cover every flower, every plant. We have double, maybe triple of what we had in the last couple of years. I think this stuff is great. I want to pull it out and just plant it out, and hopefully it'll take over somewhere because the bees really, really love it. I don't know if it's a good source for them uh, nutritionally because you know that clover is really good and goldenrod is not, for example. But um, acetum, they call it never die because the stuff just lasts, and uh, the bees just love it. They work it all the time. So I think we're just touch premature for these fall plants to give what they're going to give and i'm really hoping and waiting for that push where people are saying the flow is on so i think that's a good way to to uh, leave us hanging the cliffhanger for episode number 65 here we sit at beekeeper's corner waiting for the fall flow to come will it come will we have a great oh wow All right, everybody, that's enough. I'm going to say goodnight, say goodbye. We'll see you episode 65. Thanks for listening. This is the Beekeeper's Quarter Podcast, or at least something like that. (laughs) Bye, everyone.